I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 69, we close out season four with a recap of all we've discussed. So season four was our longest season, not in episodes. All of our seasons are 16 episodes long, uh, we believe. But because of COVID, we recorded our first episode of the season back in May. So here we are in December. <laughs> this one's lasted a while. So. Yeah, I was looking over some of these books we read, and it's uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, I really, you know, usually by the time we get to the recap, I still remember all of them. But yeah, it's been a long season. Some of them stretched uh, pretty far back out there. And obviously, the, the world has changed so much in that amount of time, you know, back in May. The world was turned upside down and had no idea what was going to happen. Now, we, I think we have a decent idea of a vaccine on the horizon and so forth. There is some light at the end of the tunnel, we hope, we think. Mm-hmm. So that's good. So today, what we want to do is kind of review some of the books that we've read and some of the ideas and see if we can pull together any threads of thought. And again, this is a good review for us, like we say, because some of these books, it's been a while since we read them. But first, uh, we'd like to say... You know, if you enjoy the podcast, we're really grateful that we have so many listeners. This really marks two years that we've been undertaking this project, Kyle. It's pretty amazing. It is. It is. So, uh, I mean, we never knew how it would do, but we're we're uh, really pleased to see how how many of you download it every week, and it's been uh, it's been really great. It's been a, yeah, it's been good for us, but and I hope it's been been good for you listeners too. It's gone from a family and friends podcast to we're getting tens of thousands of listeners every month. So it's pretty, or downloads at least. It's pretty awesome. So thank you for that. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider rating us or leaving us a review. You guys listen to other podcasts, you know, the way the algorithm works, especially for iTunes. If you rate it, the more ratings we have, the higher it moves up. So it helps others find the show and and it's a huge favor to us. So we would love it if you could do that. And of course, we always appreciate your feedback. We're getting more emails than, than we ever have, which is pretty cool. And we would love to hear your feedback, either about a show or a book recommendation or a critique, you know, if we think, if you think we've gone off the rails. So on our, <laughs> on our podcast webpage, there's a, a contact us link. So just put your email in there and your, your message, send us a note and we'll usually re- respond within uh within a few days unless it's a, an advertisement which we get about a million of those now so we may or may not respond to those <laughs> yeah but no we, we've gotten some good book recommendations already from people and uh so we're and after 60 some books a lot of our original list is exhausted and you know we're adding stuff all the time but if you if you folks are hearing about something or seeing something out there that we're we're missing let us know because we're <clears throat> we're always looking for new books absolutely and and like you say, Kyle, we've, we've, we've taken those recommendations several times and it's been interesting. It's been good. And, and we'd love to hear your feedback on, you think we should have more guests or fewer or this, this past season. And particularly in the last few months, we've, we've done a few episodes on more contemporary stuff, like what's happening in the news. If you like that or don't like that, we, we'd love to hear it. So 
anyway, without further ado, I found Kyle, I feel like one of the threads that was common through several books and our episode on the election uh, was this cultural divide that's that's becoming even more apparent here in America. And I think there has been one for decades, but it, it feels like the varnish has been torn off and it's, it's become so apparent that there really are almost two different worlds that we're living in here. Mm-hmm. We have, we had a great example from the LA times editorial for our election special, you know, so many, so many folks writing into the Los Angeles times to give their thoughts on why Trump won or why they voted for Trump. And so many of them responded that they didn't outright say it, but what they were getting at is like, there's a, there's a cultural divide and the folks on the left, they look down their noses to us. They think that we're deplorables. They think that we're, we're, uh, wretcheds and so forth. And, and then we had the book, uh, by Goodhart that really, I thought keyed into some of this, the anywheres versus the somewheres. I thought that was, that was a fantastic book, even though, I mean, it was focused so much on, on Britain and the Brexit situation, but it, I mean, it's the same thing. It's, it really, uh, nails it just, and it's, I think part of it's just mobility. He talked about, you know, people who are rooted to a place and people who aren't. And the fact that we can move now and we do, and we, t- we tend to want to live in places where people are like us and it, you know, it creates these bubbles, which is, makes it harder to understand other people. And then part of it's part of it's zoning, part of it's just the way cities are built these days. And you don't, you don't have to rub elbows with folks you disagree with. You can, we see so much of each other on social media or on zoom calls or anything else these days. It's easy to just close it out. So I think, I think some of the, sh- I th- some of the shock you hear on the left when we do win or when we come close, even is it, it's cause they don't, they don't know it. You know, the, those are these anywheres, these people who, uh, you know, sort of citizens of the world can, you know, citizens of a big city, not the little place they came from. I, I think just it's easy for them to isolate. And that is something that it's true in Britain. It's true in America. And I'm sure it's happening in other countries too. Yeah. And I think that just human nature is you kind of based on your own peer group and your own friends and the people that you see at work and who you come in contact with on a daily basis, you start to think, well, their opinions are in that I share are sort of universal and it's obviously something that happens on both sides of the aisle. I'm, we're not saying only, only people no. on the left are like this, certainly people on the right as well. Mm, for yeah. sure. And I think Trump's latest rallies about having the election stolen are a good example of that. But mm-hmm. what happens when we start to really divide ourselves to segregate ourselves based on our, these cultural factors? Well, then we're all living in these very different echo chambers. And I think it's uh, several of our books. They, they made the point in good heart in uh, Reno that we, that we read at the beginning of May or uh, back in May, June, uh, Ross Douthat has made this point m- many times the sense that, well, each of these basically say the same thing about you know, populism being a rejection of globalization, a, a rejection of mass immigration, a rejection of free trade and unli- un- unrestricted, unlimited trade. And I, I found that to be really interesting. And Trump obviously has taken that and run with it, especially on trade, especially on immigration. Although I do think that he backed off immigration a little bit, at least uh, at least at the southern border. But those two factors really seem like it's more. These are more than just political issues. 
I think these two issues, particularly immigration, really highlights the difference between these two worlds, the somewheres and the no, the, the somewheres and the anywheres, if you want to call it that, or the right and the left here in America is kind of like on the left, the, the anywheres are perfectly happy with open borders and they have no problem. Like, well, of course we want to open America to all op- opportunities in, in America to all people. So anybody, you know, come if you want, where you have folks on the right or the somewhere saying like, no, these are our jobs. We're competing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's changing our culture. We have a different, a changing world. I, I don't recognize things anymore. And, and then it's uh, this, this sort of nostalgia is, is viewed as bigotry and, and uh, passe and just a, a reach to the past. And, and one of our, one of our authors, Ron Brownstein has, has, is quoted multiple times. Like this really is his shtick, but he'll say over and over again, you have one party that represents the future and one one party that represents the future and the economic engine of America. And then another party that represents its past and the failings of, uh, of economic America. Yeah. And it, but what, what, what's, it's, it's sort of a, one, one thing Goodhart said that, um, that all change is loss. And to the to the to the uh, the people that Brownstein characterizes as the future looking, they're like, great, lose it. It was nothing good back then. And I think that I mean, Goodhart made this point too that the people who are nostalgic about the past don't necessarily hate all change, right. but it's sort of the it's the trade off versus solution debate that we've been having uh, since for since we started the podcast almost the idea that. Some folks don't think about trade-offs. They just think, well, this is the good thing to do. We're going to do it. We're going to go to the future. We're going to leave behind the bad stuff in the past, and nothing bad can come of that. Where I think the sort of Berkey and conservative that Goodhart's calling somewheres, they're recognizing that sometimes the change is good, but you're still losing something. You know, it's there's no absolute – there's rarely an absolute win where everything is better because of the change. There's always something that's left behind, something that fades away. And yeah. the, because that's a balance, I think it's hard to articulate sometimes. And it's sort of, and that's a very European social, or uh, European conservatism attitude. It's like we saw with uh, Okashot back in season two, talked about this. And it seemed very not American. Because even American conservatives are kind of forward looking, you know, onto the onto the frontier, onto the moon, mm-hmm. like Douthat was talking about. All. You know, let's keep going. Let's go forward. Let's reform things and fix things. But the farther we get away from that frontier, and the doubt it's telling, the farther we get away from the space frontier, we're there's less of that. Let's just go start anew farther west. I mean, that's the old frontier thesis of uh, uh, Turner's thing from a hundred years ago. But it's true. Uh, the death of the frontiers made us more like Europe, and. I think we've even gotten more like them in the decline of manufacturing means that you can't just go get a job. You know, you have to have all these credentials and qualifications and uh, the right resume. And that, that limits us more. It, it kind of ossifies society even more. It makes us more like Europe in that way. Mm-hmm. While at the same time, Europe is changing because of issues like immigration that they never had to deal with before, but seem second nature to a country like America that is made by immigrants. Yeah. So I, I think we're going to see in the future more overlap between European conservatives and American conservatives. And this in, on this issue, this cultural divide, I think, is a big one. Yeah, that's a great point because I, I'll count myself among those who, are, who have been surprised by, you know, Trump's message is, you know, our, uh, Reno says in his book, 
Trump's message was, I will defend you, not I will open things up. His message was, America is for Americans, not diversity is our strength. Trump's message, my job is to look out for our country's interests and it's not our job to lead the world. And I think that's definitely a shift in, in thinking. And I, I've been a little bit surprised by how, how quickly we've kind of moved in that direction. But it makes a lot of sense. And especially along the lines of what you just described, where it's a, it's a different sort of conservatism, sort of making sure that we turn a little inward and keep, keep what we do have. And my friend Rachel Bovard, who, who we had on the show, and she, she wrote a great book, she really contrasted that. She's like, if conservatives are motivated by gratitude for all the good our society enjoys, liberals are motivated by indignation towards stubborn injustices our society still endures. The left is motivated by John Lennon's vision. Imagine no religion, heaven or hell, no possessions, because they think it would lead to no poverty or hunger or fighting. I mean, that's a really, that's a serious contrast in visions, sort of, hey, I'm going to do this for us. We're in this together and I'm going to protect America versus... Imagine if there was no religion or heaven or hell or borders or. <laughs> yeah. And we, I mean, we even saw one of the cringiest moments of the, of the COVID lockdown was the celebrities all singing that on their iPhones. Yeah. And everyone, even, oh, even, even people on the left, were like, Oh, this is too much. This, these guys, you know, they're really full of themselves, but that <laughs> is the vision. And, and I, I think there's a lot of people who, who listen to that song earnestly and think it's a, a good thing, you know, what he's saying is let's destroy the past. You know, this is, I mean, it's a lot, yeah. it's a lot like Mao's vision of getting rid of the four olds, the, <laughs> all of the underlying foundations of culture, you know, of, of tradition of the accumulated wisdom of generations, like Burke talked about sweeping it aside because yeah. it has produced some unjust results. And it, but you know, like we, like we say on here constantly, we can't change human nature. We can sometimes change human behavior. You know, I mean, we can make laws, we can, put financial motivations here and there but getting rid of religion doesn't mean people are going to stop fighting about religion they'll just call right. something else religion like we do with you know they'll be fighting over the green new deal or the the woke movement which are social justice is the new religion yeah. it is and that's in the last book we read it became extremely clear that that's what that is because it even is ossified into a dogma where there's things you can't talk about there's things you can't challenge in that structure and that's kind of antithetical to western liberalism you know, we're, we're always used to the idea that you can disagree, you can, you can argue and you don't, you know, we can, people don't, might, might not convince each other. You might lose an argument, you might lose an election, but the idea that you can't challenge anything is strange to us. And I think that's, that's why those two authors who we read last week, Pluck Rose and Lindsay were, although they're on the left themselves, or at least were just had to revolt against what is the increasing uh, intolerance of that of that new quasi-religious dogma and they put forth of, of this uh, social justice movement such a very different vision of america where on the one hand you have what we just talked about populism and sort of a return to uh, a nostalgic return to understanding the world as we've as we understood it growing up and our parents how how they grew up and of course the the other side views that as with just not nothing but pure disdain and and so their posture is sort of like, let's tear it down and replace it. And, you know, maybe we do need to make, make room for, for a, a changing America. And uh, I, they make the point, Pluck Rose and Lindsay, I, I've made so many times with, with many of my liberal friends, like, here's what they say. The identity politics of the identitarian left validates 
and emboldens identity politics on the identitarian right. I mean, frankly, I know people who've never in their lives thought about being white in the least, but all of a sudden mm-hmm. they're back on the he- heels thinking of, you know, it's, it's become something that they feel like they have to think about <laughs> like, which, t- Oh, I, I guess we're on teams now. So I need to mm-hmm. figure out which team, you know, color yeah. team I'm on. And how's that going to go? Not, not well. I mean, that's, it, that, it, that's what's so crazy. Well, it's again, they think they're doing the right thing and there could possibly no, be no bad side effects. There's no, there could be no backlash. There could be no trade-offs. And if there is, it's just because those people are bad and we'll change them. And then to the credit of the social justice movement, they're doing a lot to consolidate power. They're not just, uh, absolutely, yeah. you know, they're, they're getting it done. And I think people are only starting to notice now just how pervasive this weird unreality of that applied postmodernism is because like you said there's there's certain things you can say oh well, you know we need to change some of these injustices we need to make things fairer for everybody give everybody equal access to these rights that's that's been the american vision forever it just takes a while to get where it's going but they're they're so far out there with the sort of denying objective reality denying universal truths you know the idea that bio, biology plays no role in gender is i mean that that has to be more of a religious dogma, you know, yeah. I mean, not, not that there's any God in it, but, a, you know, a, I don't know what else to call it because it's not science since they reject science and the scientific method. It's just a really heartfelt belief in something that is not true and it can, <laughs> and it can be disproved many ways, you know, and so it's, it's, it's bizarre, but it, it shows, I think that they're so bold in it shows that what um, several of our authors have pointed out is that the left has, has won the, the uh, culture wars, mm-hmm. at, le- at least for now. Dreyer talked about that in that book we read last season. It's um, that's why they're so now, now they're finally, you know, the left, which used to be, you know, you people say online so much for the tolerant left, you know, it's, it's become a cliche to even say this, but the left used to be tolerant. You know, they used to value free speech mm-hmm. and they would say the conservatives were against free speech because we were the ones in charge and, you know, we had our traditions and mores that they were challenging and we didn't want to hear it. But in the in the past few decades, they've become so powerful. Now that they're running all of the big corporations, many, you know, all of the bureaucracies, they uh, now they don't have time for toleration. They don't want to hear it. I think that the, the strength of that movement is, is just evidence that they think they've got us done and they're just mopping up what's left of Western society. I don't think that's quite true. I think, and I think like what you were saying, that the sort of backlash against it is, uh, it's going to be stronger than they expect. And, and it has been, but certainly they think they're winning. Yeah, I totally agree. So another strain of thought that I feel like we've, that I've picked up is what I'll shorthand as the changing face of the parties. And you, you wrote a great article on this that we discussed. And we discussed that Lehman article about the, Republican identity crisis, you know, where do, where do Republicans go from here? What does it look like in the future? And all that stuff is still obviously up in the air, but it's become a real focus of, I think, conservative thinkers right now. And in many ways, in many ways, there's so, so many open questions, but then also it's kind of an exciting time and thinking about, okay, where do we go from here? What does it look like? I think, I feel like our project over the last couple of years is almost a lead up to this, like uh, yeah. where, what, what is next? And if Trump decides to run again, what does that mean? And, or how, 
even more interesting to me is how do the other candidates over the next four years, Republican candidates we're talking about, primary candidates, how do they position themselves? How are they looking at the this land, same landscape? You had that great article that kind of describes what the Democratic Party might be looking like because Kamala Harris obviously is not really the candidate of the forgotten man, um, of mm-hmm. the that uh, coal miner who was part of the New Deal coalition. She's really uh, upscale, well, wine drink, champagne drinking, you know, big tech, big money, big business. So the parties are changing. And I think that um, I thought that Meyer's book was really interesting, even though it didn't touch directly on this, but it's kind of a path forward. He showed that Hey, we're going to have, we had back then we had to figure out a way to merge these two streams of libertarianism and traditionalism. And now moving forward, it's kind of like, how do we merge kind of the traditionalist and the kind of business wing and the populism? <laughs> what does that yeah. going to look like? Right. And how, how do we get there? How do we, if the Democrats have given up on the manufacturing base, the working class, well, what do, what do Republicans do to, uh, to hold on to them? And that. In the, in the articles we talked about in the election special, it's, you know, how do we, how can a party that is for low regulation, small government, small taxes also say, oh yeah, but we want to encourage, you know, we want to do things like wage support or we want to do things, you know, we want yeah. to support unions, you know, can you, can you do both? I think you're right. Meyer showed that there are sometimes contradictions, but that the two were stronger together and made more sense together, the conservative and liberal wing or conservative and libertarian wings then they did a part they you know they had more in common with each other than they had with the progressives so is that still true i, I think that's we're going to be talking about it a lot and we're i'm i'm curious to see how the republican party goes after trump i mean not that he's going to disappear i'm sure he'll still make his opinion known on things in his, in his usual way but there's going to be new leaders trying to step up new leaders you know trying to elbow their way into the next presidential race or congressional leadership and how do you how do you fuse those together um is going to be i think the the conversation we'll be having for the next four years yeah i think it's possible yeah i mean i think i think nationalism unites a lot of that and people the word nationalism has been so degraded people think it always means just taking over other countries but that's it can mean that but that's not what we're and i i think maybe that sort of belief in community belief in a place and a sort of a set of traditions that have led to something, a history that that joins us together that can smooth over a lot of differences, just like fighting against socialism and progressivism smoothed over some differences between libertarians and traditionalists who on social matters believe a lot of different things or at least to believe a different role for the government in those things, even if they don't necessarily live that differently from each other. But there was a greater threat. There was the Soviet Union and there was the progressive movement at home that was moving us in that same direction that, that showed these two sides of what we what came to be called the the right. That they had they had more they were better together, you know, as uh so I think something like that could happen, but I'm 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 not sure altogether. And I think everybody's gonna be sorting it out for a while. Yeah, and as long as Trump is still out there trying to stay front and center. I think that much of this conversation will be happening in the background, mm-hmm. but I, I believe that the con- conventional wisdom in DC is, is that Trump will tease a 2024 run, but won't actually go through with it. I think that's going to be the conventional wisdom 
and the assumptions made by other candidates who are going to kind of move forward. They're not going to want to cross him, but at the same time, they're, they all want to be in position when he decides not to, not to go through with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see if that's true or not. It may not be. I be honest. I think that's probably what happens too, but, uh, remains to be seen. And while, while he's still front and center, I think a lot of this conversation will be happening behind the scenes and on podcasts like this and with, uh, I guess, geeks like us, but it's going to be an interesting one. Yeah. Just him being out there takes a lot in the air out of the conversation. It's like, um, Theodore Roosevelt's daughter said about him that at every wedding, he wants to be the bride at every funeral. He wants to be the corpse. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of attitude that makes a president sometimes is he wants to be the center of attention. He thinks he's the, got the best ideas, the best vision, whatever yeah. it is. And he's the, he's a man we should all be talking about. Well, and because he is time, a president, he, he will be if he's, if he wants to. Be. Yeah. And at the same time, he's the one who pulled this coalition together. Yeah. You know, the, He's the one who got the second most votes in the history of America. He's the one that won in 2016 and came within a uh, a hair of 2020. And in 2024, um, obviously Democrats are going to have their own problems as well, especially if if uh, if Joe Biden, you know, he's an old man. Does he run again? It'll be interesting and yeah, a lot of a lot of open questions. But we'll be here discussing this stuff. And again, listeners, if there's if there's something that you think that we're missing, like a some thought on this or a book or maybe a really good article or something, send it our way. You know, we'd love to chew on it. Uh, another issue that, or that came up multiple times, which was on purpose. And that is some leftist thought. This was our first season where we introduced some, some uh, left-wing books and read them from a conservative perspective. And I, and I think the good success, I I enjoyed it. So we, we we read Karl Marx, something they hadn't done since college. And, Mm -hmm. I think that what we found, so uh, our, our main books were Marx and Engels, The Communist Manifesto. We read uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, The Social Contract. And even though the, the Pluck Rose and Lindsay book, Cynical Theories, uh, was not written as leftist thought, it basically was a summation for us. <laughs> so, And it's very clear that you know every one of these has uh, a few major things in common. Uh, the major theme is oppressor versus oppressed, where in Marx, it, the oppressor is the capitalist, the bourgeoisie, and the oppressed are the poor class, are the working class, the proletariat. But his, but their oppressor-oppressed framework is kind of focused on economics, where for the social justice that we were learned about from uh, from Blackrose and, and Lindsay, they still had that same framework of oppressor and oppressed. But it was rather than being focused on economics, it's focused on race and identity. You know, basically the oppressor is uh, white straight men, and the oppressed is basically the world with a with a hierarchy of of who has a greater degree of earned grievance and uh, inequality is very much a focus. You know, Rousseau was all about inequality. He believed that that there basically is no human nature, and inequality was only introduced into the world by private property. Where Marx and Engels thought inequality was, you know, based on class and greed and and the capitalist system, and in social justice, their inequality is based on identity, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than which has some economics, but not entirely, because you could be uh, a very wealthy non-binary but uh, transsexual or whatever. Uh, but so it's not only economics; it's it's more focused on identity. But 
they also all believe there's no human nature, that the human nature is created by the system, uh, for Marx and Engels, it's created by the economic system, for social justice, it's created by our language, by our superstructure, by society, and for Rousseau, it's created by private property. <laughs> yeah, but in any case, it can be changed into exactly what they see as what we should do. Yeah. But I, th- I think even even the uh, the social justice gets away from that a little bit, because I think there's no... Um... Marx and Engels saw an end. You know, they, they saw this utopia where, you know, the, the workers would own everything and the government would fade away and we'd all live sort of on the worldwide commune, everybody sharing, you know, no greed, no violence. The Like you said, the John Lennon thing. I don't know if there is a, an end point in a social justice warrior, you know, because, I mean, the, the communist wants to make everybody into the worker. But the social justice warrior is, is dividing us based on something that's immutable. You, know, you, you can make a capitalist into a worker, take away all his money, make him work in a factory. He's a worker now. I mean, they still hate him. You know, they still think he's a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. But they can they can change his class because class is only a thing that exists because of what we have mostly and partly how we're brought up. But it was about money. The Pluck Rose and Lindsay thing, I mean, the, the way they describe the social justice warrior is it's it's a weird... It's like anti-racist, but it also feels really racist because they're just talking about how these are the the immutable facts of life. The only things that are immutable are these identities, these intersections, and there's no end. Like that's that's what I've heard a lot of people, even sort of the old school lefty, who will complain about some of the like uh, Rachel D'An- or D'Angelo. I forget her first name. The white fragility author. Yeah. You know, all those things people are seeing at work now when they have to go through these long meetings and about how white people are always racist and stuff. But they, if it's like a religion, there's no salvation. There's just permanent right. condemnation. You can't fix it. It's the way you are. You know, it's it's the way this culture is. And I don't know, maybe they see an endpoint, but it's so distant. And in the meantime, nobody can get right. You know, and normally if in the traditional liberal conversations about race if somebody did something wrong if he discriminated or or even just used improper language you can fix it you know you can you can remedy it you, you know that's like that's that is the idea that there is a, an end point treating people the same and we can get to it and that, i think that's what is so weird about the social justice movement and how it it has turned even some of those economic lefties out of the party Mm-hmm. because it just feels so alienating and so endless and so you know just it's it's just assigning you to a bad class now and you're you're just bad that's it there's no <laughs> you can't fix it you're just a bad guy because of what race you are because of what you know gender you claim to be and it's uh it, if i think that explains a lot of what this party shift is this uh what you uh, call the changing face of the parties because the the face of the, of the democratic party is increasingly the face of the social justice warrior even though that's probably not most democratic voters yeah that's the ones who's, who are the loudest and are making the most noise and are alienating even their own people yeah it really highlights the division on their side you know if we're if if we're talking on our side about populism versus versus the paul ryan libertarian wing for them it is traditional liberalism versus this new social justice illiberalism it's a it's a tall task um, i i found it <clears throat> i found interesting that that there were remember when we read rousseau he he had this idea of a sense 
uh, sensorial tribunal. In other words, like a ministry of censorship. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what we, what we understand from social justice. Like, you know, what you just laid out kind of like, we're going to censor, we're going to cancel opposing opinions. You know, we're going to, we're not going to allow other, other opinions. And there's something on the left that's about that, you know, where I, I guess they would say there's some of that in, on the right, uh, in, in religion. But I guess that's just more evidence to me that that's what this is, is kind of a new religion. And, uh, what we hear is we're trying to change man to change, change, uh, the nature because we're just blank slates and we come in and it's the, it's the superstructure. It's the, it's the language, it's the economics of society that turn people into who they are, private property. And what we need to do is like dial that back, change the dials, pull different levels and so forth. And I think that really, um, that whole cancel culture thing nails down what, uh, one of the things I think it was Milton Friedman talked about in one of our books way back about how economic freedom is necessary for social freedom. Mm-hmm. Because if you can say whatever you want, but the government controls all the jobs, well, you better say what the government wants because you're going to get fired. Right. But if there is a hive mind controlling our major corporations and they're all eating up this white fragility, anti-racist, you know, uh, Antifa style dogma, it's the same thing. And that, you know, if, if there were more differences in opinions among the major corporations and the government and everything else, then you could really say what you want. But now, I mean, and we saw this is, I, I think it's pretty clear. That's why there was all these polling mismatches during the election. Cause there were a lot, a lot of people were just, I'm not saying, you know, they just, what do you think of this? What do you think of the president? Uh, I'm not going to say. Yeah. Decline yeah. to answer. Just hang up the phone. Yeah, don't take the call. Because I think they've, they've seen it go bad for other people, whether something you write about online or somebody new in real life. You, they say somebody, oh, this guy was always talking about how he didn't believe in these left-wing ideas. And then all of a sudden he was in a meeting with HR and, you know, he got, got fired. People, you know, they're just, it's not a ministry of censorship in the way Rousseau talked about it, but it's, it's an informal hive censorship. It's uh, like the, uh, it's changing the the language and the norms. I mean, they that's what they're trying to tear down, so, and then and replace it with their new norms, their new uh, their new language or whatever, to to make yeah. it difficult, so that there's now public pressure and uh, societal like expectations that you behave in this new way. Yeah, like Orwell wrote about it, like it was going to be Big Brother doing it, but we do it to ourselves instead, and it's through. It's just like the like the Cultural Revolution, where there was nobody saying these are the things we're going to persecute among the people there was just whichever voice in the mob said it and it took off it, that was the thing you know that was the voice of the people and it was and and like in our social media landscape it's often the most radical and most extreme who say something wild and, and you know the rest of us are like, well that's a little nuts you know but it catches on and then it becomes well you better not deny it or else you're with the you're, you're with the fascists or you're, you know, yeah you're, yeah so it it's it's kind of more disturbing that it's not coming from one centralized bureaucracy or one big government because that's that at least would be understandable. This it comes out of nothing and bubbles up and then it now it's the new way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one word that I wanted to mention before before we cut out and that is uh we read a book by Neil Postman that it was probably one of the best books of the season and one of the best books, you know, I would put on the top 100. Amusing Ourselves to Death is the title. And 
it was really, I, I recommend listeners, if you haven't listened to that one or read the book, I mean, he's talking about television, how he says public discourse in America has dissolved into the art of show business. And he was, he points to how our history of, of language and language and topography, it, it actually transitioned to this new medium, uh, new media, which is uh, television. And these days, it's a million times worse because of social media. A lot of really good insights, but it really also tells us not just that it's a cultural critique, but it's also, it tells us, you know, if you're, let's say, and we're just talking about the candidates for, for 2024. Well, being a candidate in 2024 is very different than, you know, FDR who had to have leg braces and wasn't sitting in a wheelchair. You know, I mean, it's very, not, not, not to say that, that I actually think that someone like that could be elected these days, but, but it's constantly putting on a show. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what is Trump, if not like grand showman and very good at that. And, and I guess Biden is the, is the antithesis. Uh, he's not, <laughs> not a great show, but no, uh, but he also is, hasn't is that a done a lot. You know, I mean, I think in, in the old days before television, uh, person might run for office saying well you know i i got this bill through the senate and it's you know very important an antitrust bill or you know a defense bill you know you might build a reputation on doing a thing or if you were governor of a state you might say you know i i got this balanced budget and we built these new roads and you know we did these things and that's why you should elect me but neither of these candidates last time was running as much on doing things as as much on being a symbol of things being in it sort of an yeah. avatar for our feelings in different ways right, right. that's definitely yeah postman is it's a it's a good book because we're so in it in that world of television and, and movies and and politicians who act like that that we don't really realize it i think about how much it used to be more of a, a written society and people who talked more along in that style more like you would write a book, you know, of a real yeah. idea and not just a feeling. And that's, it's good to read it because it kind of, it makes you step back and say, wow, this is the way we do things is a little messed up sometimes. Yeah. It's a big question mark. Like what does the future hold <laughs> if we're on this path? But all right, well, that's season four. You have anything else you want to add for the cap us off? No, just, uh, again, thank, thank you to all you listeners. Um, send us your recommendations. It's been great. I think there's so much more to come along these lines. When we started this a couple of years ago, there were changes afoot, but I think the, the parties are and the, the conservative movement are really reshaping themselves even as we speak, and we yeah. don't know how it's going to go. You know, in, in 50 years, I'll look back and see what themes were obvious, but right now it all it's all a jumble, and I hope, uh, looking forward to season five as we all try and figure it out together. Yeah, and uh, along the lines of our previous practice, we'll we'll take a few weeks off here, recharge the batteries, have a Christmas season probably and return with some, hopefully some, some more interesting books. All right. That's season four. Catch us next time.